wise men. They were the distance from here to Destin, Florida. It's a long journey. <laughs> I had the map, the map out yesterday, and my wife is saying, where are you planning on going? I'm, th- I'm just trying to find a city that we might know of that's about eight to 900 miles from here. And I, when I realized you can get all the way to Florida, that was... Uh, that was kind of eye-opening to me. See, this distance is a factor of love. And in this series that we've been in over these last several weeks, if we, as we've been looking at the outsiders that are in the Christmas story, uh, we, we have been talking about this Christmas story that comes from, comes from the New Testament and primarily from the book of Matthew and the book of Luke. And... That is really the two books that we get the majority of our, our Christmas narrative, the nativity, all of that in those two books. But there is one more book within the New Testament that tells the story from a very, very different perspective. It's a story that's told by John, but it's not the book of John. It is John in his book of Revelation talks about this Christmas story. Because when John had his revelation, he saw something. He was caught up into the heavens and he saw this story playing out. It was a clash of kings. It was a war that was taking place. It was this clash of authorities and principalities. And John saw this woman who was clothed with the sun and the moon, he says, was beneath her feet. He saw a garland of 12 stars that was upon her head and She was prepared to give birth to a child. He saw a dragon, and it was this fiery red dragon. This dragon had seven heads, and it had seven diadems. And this dragon, it says its tail went and it swept throughout the sky, and it knocked out a third of the stars from the sky. And he saw this cosmic encounter that was taking place. And I know all of this is uh, kind of this, this big grand story that is being told of, how the birth of Jesus impacted not just those who were there in Bethlehem on that day, but it impacted the entire world for the all of eternity. That this was a cosmic encounter that took place when this, wor- this woman gave birth to a child, this dragon came in, this power, this ferocity. These two, they squared off. We read about it in Revelation chapter 12. Verses 4 and 5, it says, His tail drew the third part of the stars of heaven. It cast them to the earth. The dragon stood before the woman which was ready to be delivered. For to devour her child as soon as it was born. She brought forth a man-child who was to rule all of the nations with a rod of iron. Her child was caught up unto God and to his throne. See, I think... Sometimes we, we sing these songs about Christmas, oh, holy night, silent night, these songs that are painting this beautiful, serene picture of what Christmas was, and uh, there may have been some lulls of silence in that night, and it may have been uh, quiet, but the reality is, when you look at it on the cosmic scale, this was a war that was taking place. This was a clash of kings. This was this dragon. Now, the dragon depicting 
the enemy depicting Satan himself coming and he is at war with God. The fact that God would come down and robe himself in flesh. This is a threat. This is a threat on a cosmic scale. This is a threat to all principalities and powers. And the fact that he came, it said that his, what he tried to do was then to wipe out that baby and tried to kill him right away. And we know the story. Uh, I think we do. Uh, this story of how it really played out here on earth is that there were kings that were involved. There was a king that tried to wipe out Jesus. He, his name was Herod. And he was the king that had been uh, established or king that had been put in place for them in Judea. And uh, King Herod was was uh, the one king that's involved in the story. And you have the other kings that they came from afar. And you can call them all the different names that they may be. And the wise men, the magi, or at least as the song depicts them, we three kings of Orient are bearing gifts. And uh, they may not have been kings per se, but they uh, uh, that's what we're going to refer to them to as today, as the kings from the east. See, the government, it says, rested upon the shoulders of one, though. It wasn't Herod, and it wasn't the three kings from the east. It was Emmanuel, God with us. It was the king of kings. There was a a pastor, Lockridge, from out in uh, San Diego, California, that he once said of this infant king that was born, he said that he was a seven-way king, that the king that was born on that Christmas day, he was the king of the Jews, that's an ethnic king, he was the king of Israel, that's a national king, he was the king of righteousness, he's the king of the ages, he's the king of heaven, he's the king of glory. He's the king of kings and the Lord of lords. He says, that's my king. He always has been and he always will be. I'm talking about the fact that he had no predecessor and he'll have no successor. There's nobody before him and there will be nobody after him. You can't impeach him and he's not going to resign. That's my king. That's the king that was born that day. It was a child that was born and... He was not defenseless because he was not an ordinary child. So before we are just lulled to sleep by this retelling of the Christmas story, we need to understand the fact that there was this battle that was happening within the spiritual realm when Jesus was born there in Bethlehem. And I just want to preach this reminder to us this morning of how God invaded this world on that night in Bethlehem. And here today... God wants to invade your world right here in Kendallville. That's what God really wants to do today. Is He, he, he wants to come in the same way that he invaded the world with his presence. He wants to invade your world by letting his presence take residence inside of your heart. That's what God really, is. his desire is today. So this story, this traditional Christmas story, it is one that... It has all of these kings that are present within the story, and uh, there's not conflict, or there is a lot of conflict uh, that is taking place as we as we look through this story, and uh, you look at that story that was depicted in Revelation and how 
it was this big battle that was raging, and that woman really that was depicted there was not Mary, but it was actually Israel that John would have been seeing. Uh, but Israel, out of Israel was born this child, and that child would come into the earth, and that dragon was coming against the child, was fighting against him, and uh, the one who would represent, be the representative of, of Satan here on earth was King Herod. And so we're going to turn to that particular part of the story in Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. It says that when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, there came wise men from the east to Jerusalem. They were saying, where is he that is born, the king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east, and we're come to worship him. When Herod the king had heard these things, he was troubled in all of Jerusalem with him. Here we are in this series looking at the outsiders. And the outsiders here in this story are, uh, are the ones who came from a very far land, from a very long ways away. They were outside the very scope of, of the ones who you would think would be impacted by Jesus, the birth of a, of a king that day, but yet they saw a star and they came. The outsiders are the kings that came from afar, but then you also have the one who is right there, just six miles away, the insider, and he makes himself an outsider. See, Christmas today is for the outsiders. We've talked about uh, over these last couple of weeks how Christmas is for us. It doesn't matter how far away you are. Uh, we talked about Mary and the lineage, the lineage of Jesus, how it included all these women who they were outsiders themselves. They were prostitutes and former prostitutes. They were uh, the ones who they, uh, they had made a lot of, a lot of bad mistakes in their past. And, and yet they were the ones that God saw fit to include within his, within his lineage. And so, we have outsiders that God loves to bring the outsiders in. God loves to include them. And uh, if, if you're here today and you feel like uh, you're, you're unworthy of him, just know that we're all unworthy. Every one of us is really unworthy of his love. And yet he came to love you. He came to love us. He came to bring the outsiders in. God came for the outsider. Last week, Last week, we looked at Joseph and how Joseph himself was this man who, uh, he was an outsider. He was uh, the one that was in the background in a lot of the story. We don't have any songs about Joseph that we sing. We don't, uh, we don't do a lot of, of uh, the narrative centered on Joseph. But yet, Joseph played a significant part in this story in that by him, Taking the back seat, he allowed uh, he, he allowed God to come and to, to use him, and to be able to raise this child of God, and uh, and we often that's that's what God asks of us is to take the back seat, is to say it's not about me but it's about Him, and so I, we we talked about that last week. Here today, our focus is is on these kings, this clash of kings, but really. What I want to narrow in on is this aspect of pride and humility. Because we see pride in the one 
the one who was close, the one who should have been an insider. And yet we see humility from the ones who are on the outside. We see them coming, and because of that, they are included in the story. It was, there was a few years back, there was a, a large poll that was done of Americans uh, that was centered on Christmas. And the question was asked of what do you like the most about the season and what do you dislike the most about the Christmas season? And here were the results. People like best, it was, they, there was 70% of them who said what they liked best was spending time with family and friends. The next 11% said what they liked best about the season was religious services, reflection back on what God did for us. Another 11% of them said that they liked best the Christmas spirit of joy and goodwill. 5% of them said they liked the music, the decorations, the shopping. 4% of them said that they liked it best that it, when it was all over. What people liked the least, there were 33%, they liked least the commercialism and the materialism. The 22%, they, they liked least the money and the expense that is paid out towards it. The 10%, another 10% said the shopping and the crowds. And then you had the hectic pace, bad moods of other people. And uh, a couple of them even said the pressure to go to church is what they liked the least. But here's, here's the thing, is that, uh, is that Christmas is, is hardest on the... In, on the rigid and the inflexible and, and the proud people. Christmas is hard on those who you just want things always to happen your way. If you've ever, especially if you're a young, uh, young married couple, uh, you begin to realize how difficult sometimes it is to, uh, to coordinate, you know, going to this home and then to that home and then figuring out uh, who you're going to spend time with and where you're going to spend time. And you, you learn that you have to be flexible. You learn that you have to give, a, give in here and there and, and that uh, after some time you may perhaps say, just end up saying, you know what, we are, we're going to make our own traditions out of this. But that flexibility is something that goes along with the season. Something uh, There's something that rubs against being prideful, being the one who is saying, I'm always right. See, those who can't come off of their pinnacle of self-importance and the ones who they, they can't climb down from them being the most important one, uh, they're going to quickly realize that um, Christmas is not a great season for you. Because really, what we do is we give gifts right? That's what Christmas is all about. It's about giving gifts. It's not about receiving gifts, but it's about giving. It's about, uh, it's about making somebody else's day. It's about, it's about giving to somebody else, spending time with others. It's about what can I give, not, not about what can I receive. Christmas is about giving. And here we have this story of of one king who he wants to always have things his way, and we have the other kings who they do everything to give to the one to the child who was born, the, the king that had just been born. See these kings, they're throughout this Christmas story, and and we have Herod. I want to look in on him first, King Herod the Great. That's what he called himself. You can kind of tell how prideful he is. He's not just Herod; he's King Herod the Great. 
So King Herod the Great, he was an Edomite. He was a descendant of Esau. That's what it means to be an Edomite. Uh, Jesus, of course, was a descendant of Jacob, the brother, twin brother of Esau. Uh, but he, uh, but Herod, he really uh, was, in, even though he was on the inside, being the king of uh, the king of Judea at that time, uh, he himself was not actually an Israelite. He was an Edomite. But even he'd been placed there. It was uh, during a civil war that had taken place, and he curried favor with the nephew of Julius Caesar, Octavian. And Octavian would then go on to defeat Mark Antony, Cleopatra, to be the undisputed ruler of the Roman Empire. And Herod, the schemer that he was, uh, he came in and uh, blackmailed his way in to becoming the king of Judea. So here he is now, Herod, the king, but he was hated by the people that he ruled over. He was this outsider by birth, but he was also an outsider by choice. He, he, didn't, he didn't really even want to get along with the people who he was ruling over. And yet he's here, and he's, he's the one that is the closest to the situation. You have King Herod, and uh, his, his life, um, we look over it, and Herod, he thought of himself pretty highly. He thought... For himself that he was the greatest thing that had ever happened to the, to the nation. That's why he's King Herod the Great. But if he just would have looked at the scripture, if he just would have looked at the prophecies, he would have known that there was another one that was coming. That he was not the Messiah. He was not the one. Because if he would have looked at the scripture, Genesis 3.15 says that he would be born of the seed of the woman. Genesis 9.26 tells us that the Messiah would be a descendant of Shem, and then it would be a descendant of Abraham. Okay, all of that fits. Genesis twenty two eighteen, 18, a descendant of Isaac. Okay, now we get down to the problem is that Genesis 28, 14 tells us that the Messiah would be the descendant of Jacob, and then he would come from the tribe of Judah, it tells us in Genesis 49, 10. It tells us in 2 Samuel 7, 11 that he would be a son of David. Isaiah says that he would be born of a virgin. And in Micah 5.2, it says that he'd be born in Bethlehem. So here's Herod. He's only six miles from Bethlehem. And yet he's stunned to find out that this king had been born, that this baby Jesus had been born. And here he was, in all of his pride, fixated on eliminating any threat to his throne. King Herod... He wanted to make sure that nothing happened to get him out of the palace. So he concocted this plan of killing every child. If he couldn't figure out who it was, he was going to kill every child two years and under. And he goes and it tells us, uh, it tells us this story. If you, if you uh, go through the Christmas story of how evil King Herod was in this plan that he concocted to make sure that he stayed on top. And we see the pride of King Herod shining through. I don't know if there's anybody in the room today who you struck, you've ever struggled with pride. Or you know somebody who's struggled with pride. The Bible has a lot to say about this subject. The prideful person. I just want to look here uh, at, at some scriptures 
that speak on what it means for the pride for the prideful person. What what is going to be the results? What is what are the things that you are going to inherit because of your pride? Psalm chapter ten, verse four says that in his pride the wicked man does not seek him. In all of his thoughts, there's no room for God. The proud person has no room for God. Proverbs 13.10 says that pride leads to conflict. Those who take advice are wise. So if you're prideful, you better be ready for some conflict that's going to come your way. Psalm 138, verse 6. Though the Lord is great, he cares for the humble, but he keeps his distance from the proud. Hmm. There's going to be some separation from God. If you allow pride to reside in your heart. Proverbs 11 verse 2 says that pride leads to disgrace. But with humility comes wisdom. So grace or disgrace is the end result or the result of pride. Obadiah 1 3 tells us that the pride of your heart has deceived you. You'll be deceived if you allow pride to enter in. That self-deception that uh, that will take place, that's, it's the result of a prideful heart. In Luke 18, verse 14, it says, I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God, for all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. So those who exalt themselves, the prideful person, they will be humbled. We see that self-righteousness that takes place because of pride, but that self-righteousness will lead to you being humbled. Proverbs chapter 28 verse 25 says that he who is of a proud heart stirs up strife. As I said, conflict is on the way. Strife is on the way if you allow pride to reside. Matthew chapter 23 verse 12 says, but those who exalt themselves will be humbled. Again, we see this humility that's going to take place, this humiliation. Because those who humble themselves will be exalted. James 4, 6 says that God, but he gives us even more grace to stand against such evil desires. As the scriptures say, God opposes the proud, but he favors the humble. Not only is God at a distance from you, but God is opposing you when you're proud. God is in opposition of who you are. Why? Because you think that you can do this all your way. You're prideful. You've allowed pride to seep in. Proverbs 16, 18 is our last, last verse here. Pride goes before destruction and haughtiness before a fall. <laughs> destruction and haughtiness That fall is going to come. That destruction and that fall will take place if you allow yourself to be prideful. See, what does pride do when it's crossed? What does pride do when when somebody comes in opposition to it? You try to remove that opposition. That's exactly what King Herod did. King Herod, he went and any time, this is not just in the story of Jesus, but it seems like everything in his life, he was so prideful that as soon as there was some opposition... He went and he, he would kill his wife. 
as soon as one of his ten wives came up against him in opposition. Uh, he had three of his 14 children that he was afraid that they would come up and that they would take the throne. And so he killed three of his 14 children. Any kind of, uh, any kind of opposition that was coming against him, he says, let's just take it out. Let's just get it out of the way. He was the one who ordered all of the babies, all the boy babies in Bethlehem and the surrounding area who were two years of age and under to be killed. Why? Because of pride. Pride is this really vicious thing that it can cause us to do things that we'll really, really regret. I don't know that Herod regretted them except for by the end of his life, he realized that he was not all that he was made up to be in his own mind. See, heaven saw this wicked man, King Herod, and... uh, God, God knew this whole, how this whole story was going to be playing out. So God came and he warned Joseph before King Herod ever made the decree. God warned Joseph, you need to go and take your child, take this child to Egypt. And so Joseph, he fled to Egypt. He took that infant king and he went and he, he took, took uh, Jesus there. And by the time that King Herod died, he finally, he, uh, God said, it's, it's, it's good. It's, you can come back uh, to to your home, and so he came back then. But uh, but he was able to escape this prideful man, this prideful king. And you see, pride is this thing that it's. Uh, if, if we look back at at King Herod, it is it's always uh, it's all, it was destroying his own his own life. Pride ends up destroying his own life, and the, the reality is, pride will do the same thing to us if we're not careful. If you are, if you're struggling with pride today, the, the, the greatest thing that you can do is to come face to face with God and recognize our own frailty, recognize our own inability to really make things happen. When you stand up against the King of Kings, when you stand and you look in that mirror, you, the greatest mirror that you could look into is, is this one right here. And you open this up, and you begin to see that this is reading your mail real quick. And the pride begins to melt right away if you truly allow the Word of God to, do, to, to take effect in you. If you allow this to be a mirror to your heart, it can begin to come in, and it can begin to soften some areas of your life and, and begin to take these areas of pride out so that you can have room for him, because if you have pride in your heart, there is no room for God to come in. Pride, pride leaves no room for God. See, Matthew two, chapter 2, verse 9, if we continue on in the story, we encounter these other kings who are in the story. It says, that when they had heard the king, they departed. And lo, the star, when they saw it in the east, it went before them, till it came and it stood over where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. And when they were coming to the house, they saw the young child with Mary, his mother. They fell down and worshipped him. When they had opened their treasures, they presented unto him these gifts, gold, frankincense, myrrh. So some men, they they call, or some would call these the wise men, the the magi, uh, the kings. refers to them here, Matthew, as kings. And... The reality is we don't really know a lot about them. 
we sing the song, We Three Kings, and uh, I know the tradition is that there's three of them. The reality is, all we know is that there are three gifts that they're bearing. Uh, We don't really know how many. Uh, We know that there was more than one. It calls them plural kings, Uh, and they were bearing at least three gifts. And so much beyond that, the only thing that we know is that they were from the east, the far east, which... Uh, most would say that, uh, if, you, if you look into it, that it, they were likely from Babylon. And uh, there was also one of the reasons for that likelihood of coming from Babylon is because you had so many of the Jews that had spent time there in Babylon. And there was the prophecies that they had that would have been left over there in that city. And far from the east, uh, you have Daniel, who he would have spent time there. You have other prophets who they were in Babylon. And, and, and of their prophecies that were pointing towards this child who would be born, those were the books that they would have happened upon to then see the star that would arise in the east, or that would arise there. And uh, they would follow that star to come and to see Jesus. Not the night he was born. We always put the wise men right in the stable They weren't there that night. It was more likely two years later or several years later that they came, and it says that they came to the house where Jesus was at. But these these kings, that they when they came bearing these gifts, here's what we know is that uh, even though we don't know much about them, they were people to be revered. We know that because of the way that King Herod interacted with them. I mean, this man who was so full of pride. He, he, he revered them. He, he, he listened to them. He brought them in. He, he wanted to make sure that he was putting his best foot forward for these men that were, uh, that were coming in to visit. So these were men to be revered. And these are men that, that are coming and they're, they're of great riches. They, they were bringing these gifts that would have been the greatest, most precious things that you could ever find in the ancient world. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. They're, they're bringing these gifts, some of the priciest things, and, and they were coming, coming to bring them who they thought was probably the son of King Herod. So they stop by the palace, and they come to King Herod, and they say, hey, where's the baby at? Herod's saying, I, I don't have any baby. I don't, I don't know what you're talking about. Now, when they come, and they, 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 they reveal to him that all of their... their uh, Study is showing them that a, a new king has been born. Well, this begins this uh, begins this whole story that we had just gone over in Herod. How now he wants to kill that child. But for them, they chose a different path. For them, they chose the path of humility. Humility is what brought them all of those miles, eight nine hundred miles to Bethlehem. Humility is what caused them to empty their treasures to Jesus. Humility is what brought them to a place of worshiping the King of Kings. See, humility is the way that Jesus was born, that God came and He presented Himself to earth, uh, to us here on earth, is in humility. But the kings also, bringing their gifts, came with this humble heart and all humility, And it wasn't with this prideful attitude, but instead it says that they came, they bowed, and they presented their gifts. I just want to, I just want to look at this comparison of pride. We just went through all those scriptures of pride. 
Well, what does humility yield? Humility, it makes room for God. Humility, it brings peace. Humility draws you nearer to God. Humility brings honor. Humility brings trust in God. Humility, it brings worship to God. It, humility, it yields revelation of who God is. Humility, it brings harmony. Humility brings exaltation. Humility, it brings God's favor upon you, not God pushing you away. Humility, it yields transformation in you. This is what humility brings. So the reality is when we look at this story and we look at our own life, we see that pride is the greatest enemy and humility is our greatest friend. I've heard it said before that prideful people are like puffer fish. They're really clumsy swimmers, but they have this really great weapon. And uh, a puffer fish has a toxic, toxic substance within them that makes them very deadly to other fish. It's 1,200 times deadlier than cyanide. It has enough poison in one puffer fish to kill 30 adult humans. There's no antidote to the poison, so don't get near a puffer fish. But like puffer fish, we can blow ourselves up with pride and hot air. We can try to make ourselves look bigger and more important than we really are. And that pride, is, it's, it's toxic. It's toxic in our relationships. It's toxic in our marriage. Pride is, is toxic to the church. Tight. Pride is toxic within friendships. Pride is toxic even to ourselves. Pride is this very toxic thing that we have. And we blow ourselves up, make ourselves look big. And, and, and the reality is we, we also have this, this toxicity within us that it is going to destroy us. Pride will destroy you. God's trying to drill in on, on some prideful hearts. God's trying to drill in this morning on, on some things in, in us when we look in the mirror and we say, hey, I can't change. Why? Oh, because, because that's going to make me look weak. I can't, I, can't make, I can't do this thing that God's asking me to do because it's going to make me look like I don't have everything together. I can never come up to an altar and pray because, uh, because that's going to make me look like my life is not good. I'm not, I don't have things held together. I, I can't reach out to this person for help. I can't, I can't reach out and, and, uh, and, and be there and or tell somebody that, hey, hey, I need you right now. Why? Because of pride. We, a lot of times, we just hold everything in. And we never, we never open up and say, I need help. We never are actually real with others. We're never, a lot of times, we're not even real with God. God already knows what's going on in us. God already knows all the issues that need to be fixed. God already knows all these things. But yet, here we are not willing to open up to Him so that He can come in and begin to fix those issues in our life. But yet, we allow pride to close us up. We allow pride to make us like a clam or like this puffer fish that, that we blow ourselves up and make ourselves look all big and strong. The reality is, it's hurting us. It's not helping us. See, when God came to earth, He came in humility. When the kings, when they came, they presented these gifts to Jesus. They came with humility. They came all this distance. 
this distance, not just from here to Noble Hawk, not just a six-mile distance that the prideful one wasn't willing to go, but the eight to 900 miles, all the way down to the coast, all the way down to Florida, you get to the Gulf of Mexico. They traveled all of that. Why? Because distance is a factor of love. If you love, there's no obstacle between you and, and the one that you love that's going to stop you. There's no, no amount of pride that's going to stop you. But in humility, you are going to do everything that you can to get to the one who you know has all the answers. To get to the one who is able to, to put you back together. So what God is looking for here this morning is somebody who's real with him. God's was looking for this morning is not the prideful person who, who they say, hey, I've got everything together. I don't need to let him in. I don't need to open up right now. But no, he's looking for somebody who in your heart, you're saying, God, I need you. And I need you today. And I'm not all that I'm not all that I'm cracked up to be. I'm not, you know, I don't have everything figured out. Most of all, all I know is that if I could present a gift to you, whatever gift I have, God, may be small, may be insignificant, but I'm going to give it to you. We all stand in this place. For many of us, the the only gift that we have to bring is, is just ourselves. He's not looking for money. He's not looking for gold. He's not looking for any kind of riches that you have, any kind of other gift that you could bring. The greatest gift that you could give to him here today is your heart, your mind, your soul. That's what he's looking for here today. He's looking for somebody who is willing to surrender themselves to him. As those wise men and as three kings, as they came, they bowed down and they presented that gift. That was the greatest most precious gift that they could think of. But even more precious than that gift today is if you would just bow down or even if you would just lift up your hands here today and in lifting your hands you say, God, here I am. I surrender myself to you. Well, could we do that? Is there somebody in humility today who could just give up a praise and some worship to the King of Kings? Is there anybody today that would allow the pride to melt from their hearts? Is there anybody today who would say, God, I, I, I'll go whatever distance it is, whatever distance I need to travel today to get to you. God, I, I don't know how much strength I have, but God, I'm going to do whatever I can to get to you right now. God, whatever obstacles I need to move, Lord, I'm going to move them so that I can get in your presence here today. God, if there's something that is, a, that, there's something that's tripping me up, there's some kind of blockade that is here, Lord, I, would you remove it, Lord, because I, I need to get to you here today. Come on, God's looking for that humble heart. He's looking for somebody in humility that you'll approach him and say, God, I surrender to you. I surrender. Hallelujah, Jesus. Just want to be with you.
Just one.